0: The assigned topic is corporate prayer uh, in the church and in worship. And
1: even though there is no outline in your book, because I'm delinquent, it will be very easy to follow. The outline is real simple. I'm going to try to define corporate prayer as I'm going to use it. And then, secondly, I'm going to ask the question why should we pray corporately? And then, finally, I'm going to ask the question, what stirs up vital corporate prayer in the church? Those are my three questions, and I don't know how long it'll take me, but we have 45 minutes. I hope there's some time for questions at the end since it's a workshop, although I sure have a lot to say. I want to be real brief about the corporate prayer definition, but uh, I just sense right now that I should pray and ask God maybe in view of the shortness of the time just to make us real wise in what I choose to say. and you choose to ask, Father, don't want to run ahead without consulting with you the way the Israelites did when the Gibeonites deceived them. Forbid that we would be deceived more in the rush of these days into doing things or saying things that are not helpful. Would you come right now with your very special counsel? and wisdom, and guide me so that I leave out things that would be of less importance and include what you know best for these people would be of maximal importance. Lord, be here to encourage our hearts in this tremendously important issue of praying together. In Jesus' name, amen. Whenever I pose a question for the New Testament, there's something about my mind That always asks the opposite. So that the first text that came to my mind when I thought of corporate prayer was Jesus saying, When you pray, go into your closet and shut the door. And pray in secret and your father who hears in secret will reward you. Isn't that funny how your mind works? I think that's good that that happens to your mind so that you're always balancing One text with another text and asking, what's the root here? Now, what makes it tick? Why do we pray out loud together when Jesus says, when you pray, go into the closet, shut the door and pray in secret? And I'm going to pose that question and try to answer it. But what I noticed when I looked it up and read it in context was the very next paragraph is,
0: when you pray, say, what's the next word? Our Even when you're in the closet, say our, and the implication being you're at least thinking corporately when you're in the closet,
1: our, our, our daily bread. So it's not either or for sure. And when you read the Old Testament, you have these great gatherings of the people of God and Jehoshaphat and Solomon and David praying. Ezra praying these long, wonderful prayers while the people listen and no doubt say yes, 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 about the history of Israel and the power of God and the future of God's work. Yes to this corporate praying. And then you move right on through the book of Acts and they're praying corporately again and again. I wrote down about six places here, but you can find those places. You believe, I think, that corporate prayer is ordained of God. Let me give you a definition as to the way I'm going to use it. Um, corporate praying would be praying or prayers offered to God in the hearing of other believers who agree with and affirm the prayers. Prayers made in the in the hearing of other believers who then agree with those prayers and affirm them in some way. I don't know how you feel about prayers, but oh, how I wish I could loosen the vocal cords of my people when I am praying. So that they grunt more. Or say, hmm, or yes, or amen. Are you there? Is anybody there? Do you hear what I am praying? Do you agree? You must signal your agreement in some way to me. Otherwise, you may as well not be there while I'm praying. But I haven't succeeded real well yet. I know the kinds of people who will respond to me that way. And I like to pray with them a lot. Because when they say, mm mm-hmm, yes, mm Mm-hmm. I just feel, hey, they agree, they're listening, they're with me before the throne. If they don't do that, I'm going to open my eyes and say, are they asleep? What's going on here? If There's no affirmation. So I'm looking for, in corporate praying, a togetherness that manifests itself in some way, not just kind of you pray, then you pray, then you pray, then you pray, then you pray but some way of communicating togetherness, agreement, and affirmation. Those would be the operative words in that definition, togetherness, <laughs> agreement, and affirmation. Let me give you some examples of what I mean, lest you think this is a seminar on the Wednesday night prayer meeting, which it isn't. Um, Monday and Friday morning prayer meetings at Bethlehem, maybe a dozen people, maybe six some mornings, meet at seven on one morning and 6.30 on the other. Staff meetings, we have eight on the staff and we pray for an hour together every Monday afternoon, solid prayer, as well as the staff meeting that goes for another three hours. Uh, during services, I have in mind the whole range of prayers in your services. Not just the pastoral prayer, but prayers of praise and benedictions and invocations and quiet moments and perhaps group gatherings and what you do at the end of the service. All of that I mean by corporate prayer. Uh, Wednesday night, we, we, we've tried all kinds of different things. We have no glorious service on Wednesday night. I, I'm not up here as a model of Wednesday night service. Right now, we sandwich a Wednesday night prayer time between a supper And a a teaching time for 40 minutes. We pray for 40 minutes. We get maybe 20 to 30 people. We have a 1,000 people at my church. Okay, so this is no great. I'm I'm not talking about any any great success story here. We're going to be talking about. I'm not worrying about that as much as I used to. Because of how many different ways our people are praying all through the church. Small groups I have in mind. um, And so on. Those are just some of the. Kinds of corporate praying that we're doing. Now, reasons for corporate praying. I'm involved in the steering committee for Prayer 90, as I was for 87, 88, 89, the big prayer rally that David Bryant was talking about, and I've gotten criticism from people as I've tried to articulate the reason for pushing for thousands of people to gather for prayer. Like, God doesn't care about thousands of people, he cares about prayer, he cares about
0: Intensity, not numbers. And so I've really given a lot of thought to whether there's any value in this. Whether there's any
1: value in 30 or 10 or 5 or 2 or just 1. Where does the value factor cut off? Is 2 better than 1? 3 better than 2? 4 better than 3? When does it stop being significant that you're together with more people? Or is it ever significant? Do we all just be praying alone? See the kinds of questions you're forced to ask. When you're in a prayer movement, so here's my effort to try to define why it's good to gather a group like this, or 20, or 10, or five, or 5,000. Reason number one: corporate prayer displays and spreads the glory of God. And all of these, you could say, are better than individual praying, but I won't add that on on uh, those. Let me illustrate. From Second Corinthians one eleven. Paul says, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted in answer to many prayers. Now, many will give thanks because many prayers were made. There is a correlation between the many of the praying and the manyness of the thanksgiving, and God is after thanksgiving. God is after his glory. Chapter 4, verse 15, I think it is, it says that many will give thanks to God to his glory. So if you ask, what's God's purpose in the world? I would, of course, say God's purpose in the world is to magnify his glory. And then if you say, well, how do you do that? One answer is you get a lot of people to ask him for a lot of things so that when he answers, a lot of people are saying thanks to his glory. And there's a dynamic of togetherness in that so that God gets corporate glory, which is what he's after in the end, according to Revelation 5. He gets corporate glory when there's corporate asking and then corporate honoring for the thanks. The heart of that kind of glory is shown in Psalm 50, verse 15. This is Robinson Crusoe's text. Spurgeon preached a great sermon called Robinson Crusoe's Text. And it's Psalm 5015, it goes like this, call on me in the day of trouble and I will deliver you and you will glorify me, which simply means God gets glory when he's given the opportunity to answer prayers. Call on me in the day of trouble, I'll do the delivering, then you will respond and glorify me, which is what I'm after in the world. And so if you all do that together, how much more will my glory redound? One last text on this point. Matthew 6, 9. The first petition of the Lord's Prayer is what? See it? The petition. Hallowed be thy name. Which means sanctified, set apart as infinitely worthy and glorious be thy name. Your number one burden in prayer should be that God get glory. Isn't that what that means? Hallowed be thy name means get glory for yourself in the world today. Get glory in this conference. Hallowed be your name. Let all these people in this room right now. Hallow your name. It's an imperative, just like he said this morning. Those are third person singular imperatives. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. You're instructing God with third person imperatives. Get it for yourself. And so that's reason number one. Reason number two. Corporate prayer helps remove obstacles to unity and thus releases power helps remove obstacles to unity and thus releases power. Three texts. Matthew 5, 23 to 26, if you're going to the altar to offer your gift and you know that someone has a legitimate grievance against you, go be reconciled. Now, it's much easier to fulfill that when you're already together before the altar. It's much harder to hold a grudge against someone who's far away who's near you than who's far away. It's very hard to pray with earnestness with a person you're angry at next to you. And that reminds me, as my second text under this, the the text about husbands and wives in 1 Peter 3, 7. Husbands, live together in honor with your wives as the weaker vessel, weaker feminine vessel. Live together with them as fellow heirs of the grace of life in order that your prayers Not be hindered, which simply means that if there are if there's disunity, disharmony, dishonoring and belittling of any kind that doesn't correspond to this fellow heir status. Prayers are going to be hindered, which means that when a husband and wife kneel, like Noel and I do every night by the bed, if there's something wrong, you know it right then. Pretty good because you don't pray right. And there have been nights when Noel and I have Knelt. There have been about three minutes of total silence. And then one of us gets up the nerve to say, I can't pray. And the other one says, I can't even. So it, it works that way in a marriage. It works that way in a church. If you force yourself together, you can't play games anymore. You could let that go on for days if you didn't kneel together. And then you've got to deal with it. Let not the sun go down on your wrath. Give. You, Place to the devil. And of course you all know Matthew 18 19. If two or three are gathered to agree, agree, agree. That's number two. Corporate prayer removes obstacles to unity and releases power. Number three, corporate settings allow for obedience to James five sixteen. Corporate settings allow for obedience to James five sixteen, which says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I take those two together, not
0: separate. Confess your sins to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. Corporate setting, you cannot confess your sins to one another if you're not together. Or at least on the phone together. And yet that should be a part now and then of corporate praying.
1: I... Just made an awful blunder with my son, Benjamin, the other night, helping him with, it, helping with algebra. He wanted me to help him with these new graphs. you got to turn a graph into an equation. I didn't understand this. It looked vaguely familiar. I said, have you read the chapter? No.
0: You haven't read the chapter yet? How do you expect me to help you? You haven't even read the chapter. I can't understand the chapter. Well, read it, and then I'll help you.
1: I was so tired. I went upstairs, and I've never been slapped across the face so clearly by the Lord Jesus. Because I lost an entire 50,000 byte file in the next five minutes. I just wept. I said, why did I, what happened? Three months of journaling, gone off my computer. And I said, that's Hebrews 12, isn't it, Lord? That's a rebuke. That's a father's loving whipping. And I went downstairs and I helped him. And the next morning, I hadn't even gotten up the moral courage to apologize. But the next morning, as he was ready to leave for school, he's 14. I said, Benjamin, come here. I said, I really feel bad and sorry about my impatience last night. Will you forgive me? He said, sure. Thanks for helping me. Good. We're clean now. You must confess those kinds of things. If you've ever spoken... Wrong. And you go to prayer with somebody. How healing. How powerful. To just say something like, oh, I feel so bad about the way I talked the other day. That must happen. And then another thing on this point, pray for one another that you, that you may be healed. Does it ever strike you as strange that Jesus didn't usually heal over distance? He could. could say a word and a person in a distance would be healed. He seldom did that. He usually touched He usually looked right in their eyes. He spit and touched. There's something about this close touching business. And so that happens, too, when you're together. So that's number three. Number four, we're on reasons now for corporate prayer. Corporate praying intensifies the camaraderie of spiritual warfare, intensifies the camaraderie of spiritual warfare. Let me tell you where the text that I get this from, the spiritual warfare dimension. All praying in my mind is spiritual warfare. Even it's about simple domestic family things or whatever. The text is John 15, 16. It says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide
0: so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. The logic of that is very striking. I have appointed you to bear fruit so that
1: whatever you ask, you'll get. I have appointed you to bear fruit so that whatever
0: you ask, you'll get. You get it? It means prayer is designed
1: for fruit bearing. Or to change the image, prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie, not a domestic intercom. I have given you a, um, a, a strategy in my warfare so that your walkie-talkie will work. Because it doesn't work when you're AWOL. It doesn't work when you're out of commission. And I've said many times, and I think it's been one of the most influential things at my
0: church that
1: one of the reasons prayer aborts in its significance for people's lives is that they try to turn a wartime walkie-talkie into a domestic intercom to ring up the butler to bring another cushion to the den. When it's designed for war, to be in ministry calling in
0: firepower and air cover, it's not designed to make my boat start this afternoon. Number five, and, and togetherness intensifies
1: that. that. That's the point. Togetherness intensifies that effort. Number five is very similar. Corporate praying enlarges the vision of what we are praying toward. Corporate praying enlarges the vision of what we are praying toward. I got that phrase from David Bryant. I love it. Praying toward. There must be an Elisha in every prayer meeting to open the eyes of the servants who see nothing but the Assyrians. You remember the chariots, fire, and the horses. How many times have we been praying together in little groups at Bethlehem or larger groups, and somebody's praying for this little thing or that little thing, and there doesn't seem to be any strategic urgency about the prayer meeting, and suddenly God comes and somebody says, Oh, God, grant I pray that our missionaries in Liberia would be protected. Grant that this unprincipled leader, Mo, would be brought down. Grant, O Lord, that there'd be no bloodshed, but that you would release integrity and honesty in that government and that there wouldn't have to be a bloody revolution and that those who are standing for justice would triumph and that the cause of Christ and Elwa would stand. And the whole atmosphere changes. Because we've been lifted, the vision has been enlarged, and then somebody goes to Albania and Mongolia and North Korea, and we're, we're enlarged, or we pray about the city, or we pray about abortion, or... And somebody has to do that, and if you're at home all alone, you might be inspired to pray that way, but it's so helpful to hear people who are the Elishas among us break us out of our small mindedness. Number six. Corporate praying teaches about prayer, God, and life. I'd love to spend 45 minutes on this because it's full of dangers and full of prospect. Corporate praying teaches the people of God how to pray and about God and life. Let me give you three illustrations of those. It teaches young Christians how to pray. I love, as a pastor finding new phrases to pray, and then hearing them weeks and months later, turning up in my people's prayers. At a leadership conference last fall, I began to use the phrase, and I got it from 1 Samuel, where uh, Samuel is said that the word of the Lord stood forth for him. And I began to use that phrase. Lord, don't let us just read your word mechanically. Would you stand forth in the reading of your word? Would you stand forth in our congregation? Would you stand forth in our small groups? I just wove it in again and again. It started to pop up here and there. Because we learn to pray by listening to people pray. Our children learn to pray. Our people learn to pray by hearing us pray. And so in corporate praying, those who stumble over language and don't seem, Oh, I have watched some people grow in prayer. I think of Maureen at our church, a young woman, who a couple of years ago was so utterly untaught. And unschooled, and now one of the best, most earnest prayers at our prayer meeting. And I assume, study, listening. Secondly, about uh, learning about God. I just prayed the other, we're, we're reading Psalm 119 at the breakfast table now. And Psalm 119, yesterday morning, said, Psalm 119, 35, Cause me to walk in thy statutes in the way of your commands. Incline my heart to you. And at the end, I, I asked the boys, do you believe God does that? Causes people to walk in his statutes. you have the right to do that? And then they, okay. That's a prayer. Cause us to walk in your statutes. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to getting gain. Do you believe God does that? Does God have the right to intrude upon my will and incline it toward me? You bet he does. It's the heart of my theology. And you communicate theology in your praying. God has rights to incline the will. God has right to cause his people to walk in paths of righteousness. And so if you want to get across a theology, make sure the theology is woven into your prayers. You can't help but be. You can tell a person's theology pretty good by the way they pray. The third thing is it teaches about life. How do you handle the offertory moment on Sunday morning? I read somewhere where somebody says you are absolutely asinine as a pastor if you don't preach on giving twice a year. I think I've preached on giving three times in 10 years. But I preach every Sunday on giving at the offertory. 30 seconds, one minute, and especially in the way I pray about money. My people squirm under the way I pray about money. Lord God, grant that our people would understand that those who desire to be
0: rich are headed for hell. See, it's right there in 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who desire to be rich have their hearts
1: pierced through with many pangs and led to destruction. You just weave your vision for a lifestyle into your praying and they'll hear it loud and clear Grant that our people would not love money. Grant that they wouldn't need two cars. Grant that they wouldn't need houses by their lakes. Grant, oh God, that on vacation they would minister and not just lollygag, you know. You just, you just, you just fill it, you just fill your prayers with truth about lifestyle as you live it out. So it's a great teaching tool. I say there are dangers in this because if you start to teach through praying Consciously, that is, that becomes the main purpose. That'll show real quick. Preaching prayers get nowhere. You have to really be calling upon the Lord. You have to really want God to do what you're asking him to do, not just be using prayer as a cloak to to get somebody's goat. Number seven. Passion is contagious. Passion is contagious and our people must have passion. Passion. In their praying, Jeremiah says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with what? All your heart. Well, what if your people aren't seeking him with all your heart? What do you do? One of the things you do is you seek him with all your heart in front of them. Spurgeon used to say, my people come to watch me burn. And I believe they come to Bethlehem to watch me burn. I I really believe that my role at Bethlehem Baptist Church is to be a fire on Sunday morning where people can hold up their torches. Like this. They've gone out. It's a tremendous burden to bear. But you must bear it if you're a pastor.
0: Who will light their fires? Where are they going to light their little torches
1: that are flickering all week long if you don't burn for God in the pulpit on Sunday morning? I believe that's our calling. And in prayer meetings, it's... I'll never forget a prayer meeting with Tom Rogstad. Tom was the... Tom was the... uh, chairman of the deacons back a few years ago, and Tom had a real tough background with his dad. The word father means a lot to Tom. And I remember one night we divided up its prayer teams in the deacon council, and we
0: prayed. And, and the way he said, oh, father, I still remember it to this day. Oh, father. Oh, father. Just it was. That's all I remember. But I remember it three years later. Oh, Father,
1: passion is contagious. As soon as he had that said that, I melted with love for my Father. I just melted with love for my Father because I heard passion, I heard affection, I heard brokenness. That's the value of corporate praying. God will always grant, won't He? I hope so. He seems to at Bethlehem that somebody in the prayer meeting can say. Oh, Father, so that the whole mood is is changed. Let's go to the last question. Um, What stirs up vital corporate prayer? Because that last point is really the first answer. What stirs up vital corporate praying? The first answer is passion begets passion. Now, let me mention three things from the Lord's Prayer about things you as leaders should be passionate for. Hallowed be thy name. For that prayer to sound real, you must be you must be passionate. They're delivering somebody next door, I'll bet. This is just fine. That's Doyle Van Gelder over there. Um,
0: Passion for God. Hallowed be Thy name. Second, Thy kingdom come. You must be passionate
1: for the kingdom. And third, thy will be done on earth the way the angels do it in heaven. You agree with that paraphrase? I don't know who else would be doing the will of God in heaven as it's done in heaven. How do the angels do the will of God? Perfectly, purely, energetically, with fervor and zeal. So I would say passion for God, passion for the kingdom, and passion for purity or the obedience. And I think you simply must be passionate in your praying. When I go to churches on vacation and I don't hear passion, I weep for the church. A pastor without passion is a tragedy for the church. And I don't mean that you have to have a personality like mine. Peterson, this morning, does not have a personality like Brian, okay?
0: Clear as a bell. Was there passion? There was passion. And his people feel it. Jonathan Edwards, my hero, they said
1: preached like this, put his elbow on a cushion, held his book, which was about this size, a little smaller, and never gestured and read his sermons. And people fell off their pews sometimes. He, he was incredibly passionate and intense. Doesn't have so much to do with tone of voice as it does with that undefinable something of flame and fire. Build a fire and you have one that's going crackle, crackle, bang, pop. And you can have a fire that's been doing that for 12 hours, and you see just a huge pile of, of red-hot coals in there. You know, you don't get close to that thing. That is hot, even though it's not making any noise anymore. So passion begets passion. And the reason i read these books out here, and if I had a half an hour, I'd lift them all up, but I, 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 we're going to lose our time if I do. You'll ask, okay, if my people are to light their fires at my fire,
0: where do I light my fire? And that's my answer right there. I've got nobody to go to. I've got
1: nobody to go to. I meet with pastors, but they don't generally light my fires. I'm sorry. It's a tragedy. They talk about money, buildings, and programs, and retirement, and vacations, and McDonald's Fat in hamburgers and, is, and I I go to the Puritans. I go to Jonathan Edwards and read his sermon. God. A prayer hearing. God. And then Wesley Duell, lest you think I'm too close to Arminianism. <laughs> I'm a Calvinist through and through, but here's an Arminian that stokes my fire. Wesley Duell. I had him I sold, I think, two hundred of these books to our people. During prayer week, a blaze for God. Then I sold a hundred of these during a recent thing. Let God guide you daily. Here's his brand new one. I just got it this week. Mighty prevailing prayer. And then touch the world through prayer is the most famous one. But there's a man who stokes my fires. And then mission Story stoked my fires. Classics of Christian mission and the key to the missionary problem and taking our cities for God. YWAM people. And Rosalind Goforth, How I Know God Answers Prayer, Missions, and then Revival Histories, like uh, Sprague's Lectures on Revival and uh, Ravenhill's Revival Praying. And then just books on prayer, these, Halsby and McIntyre and Bounds and, and this unknown author. And then biography, oh, I couldn't live without biography of Mueller and, and uh, um, uh, Nettleton and Hyde, and St. Andrews 7, and just this one somebody gave me about the story of the church in Mozambique, and Hudson Taylor, and so on. So, you've got to find a way to stoke your engines. However you do it, you must do it. It is top priority. So that's number one, passion begets passion. Number two,
0: knowing the glory of God's eagerness to work for us. Knowing the
1: glory of God's eagerness. In other words, your people must learn from you the glory of God's eagerness to work for you. The theology that drives my church and that drives our prayer ministry is the theology of Isaiah 64.4. No
0: I have seen a God like you that works for those who wait for him. 2 Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord
1: run to and fro throughout the whole world to show his strength on behalf of those whose heart is whole towards him. Mark 10.45 The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve his people and give his life a ransom for them. Acts 17.25 God is not a man that he can be served by human hands, for he himself gives life and breath to everybody. You can't serve God. He will not give you the glory of being a resource to him. He will preserve the glory of being the all-sufficient fountain of spilling out upon you. He means to be the glorious servant in your life. Now, when your people get thrilled with knowing that that's the nature of God, that he's bent on doing two things, glorifying his name, and that the way he glorifies his name best is by working for helpless people who ask him to, they are set free. God cannot be served by human hands as though he needed anything, for he himself gives life and breath and everything. You must teach theology if you want your people to pray. If you try to just talk relationally and make everybody feel good and avoid tough doctrines, there'll be some touchy feeliness but they'll come back. There are churches in this city where people leave and go from Bethlehem because I drive such a bargain. And they come back, many of them. Three people in the last... The only reason I'm mentioning this is because it's so much on my front burner right now. Because it breaks my heart when they tell me they're leaving. Because I'm, I'm not soft enough or tender enough or caring enough or warm enough. And they leave. And three of them, three of them in the past two weeks came back and said, Just got so thin. All oh, this grace, grace, grace. As though grace were a thin thing. I mean, I live by grace. Sovereign. Massive grace. But to me, grace is not tolerance. It's a power to change people's lives. And I demand change because God demands change. There is a holiness without which we will not see the Lord. And I preach it again and again. It makes people feel uneasy and they try it and they come back. Many come back. Three, stir up a holy dissatisfaction With our present level of joy and faith and power, you must stir up holy dissatisfaction. I brought this along just to show you one of the ways I try to do that. I'm going to mention the first and most important way. Be dissatisfied, holy before your people. Cry to God for your own improvement in front of your people. Confess your faults and your sins before your people and cry to God for more of God. Give me more, more, more. On Sunday morning, you let them hear that week in and week out, that you want more of God. That Ephesians 3.19 has not yet been fulfilled, where Paul prays that we might have power to comprehend with all the saints what is the height and depth and length and breadth to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge and be filled with what? Come on. All the fullness of God. Does anybody in this room claim that yet? Do you have all the fullness of God in you? I don't, which means I'm always dissatisfied. I'm always dissatisfied. My people read it. He's hungry this morning. He's on the lookout for God. I tell the people, come to worship on the lookout for God. Leave on the lookout for people. So that when you walk into our church on Sunday morning, it's quiet. Nobody's talking to anybody. And at first feels unfriendly to people. But as we tutor them and school them, they're on the lookout for God. They're on their faces. We need God. And then when we're done, back and forth. Talk to people. Now, I don't have to say you don't have to do it that way. That's just the way we do it. That's one idea. Then I wrote this star article. This is our little newsletter that goes out each week. And I entitled it back in prayer week. More, 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 more. And I just listed 18 texts where the Bible says, go for more, go for more. And so I just try to try to cultivate a constant dissatisfaction spiritually. I just think George Burwer is right. What's killing America, what's killing the Christian cause in many places is that Christians don't care if they get any more of anything but houses, lands, pleasures, luxuries. How many of our people are weeping for more of
0: God, weeping for more power, weeping for more purity, weeping for more fruit? More, more, more.
1: I cannot resonate with people who do not tell our people that that's the way they ought to be. And that if they're not that way, they're not right.
0: Not to be hungry for God is not to be right. Strive for the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. We got three minutes for questions.
1: I'm done. I took you off guard by saying that. I'll give you a minute, a second to think. You can either say, why didn't you talk about this? Or you can say, what did you mean by that? Or you can say, I don't agree with what you just said. Or don't you need to balance it? Go ahead. between what you the importance of whole church corporate prayer as opposed to the corporate prayer small The question is, yeah, it's a debate in ours too and in my heart. The question is, is there a difference or how do you handle the question of whether to be all together as a whole church or to be in small groups? For eight years or nine years, I defended the Wednesday night prayer meeting. And that's the one place where we're all together corporately and we'd have 30 to 50 people out of a thousand. But at least anybody could come. And we still have that. I still believe there probably should be a place for that. Uh, we, we sandwich it in right now between our supper and our, our institute, as we call it, and for 40 minutes we pray. And uh, But I, I just admit, we have diversified so much with our morning prayer meetings, noon prayer meetings, downtown prayer meetings. We have three business people prayer meetings. Uh, we have 60 small groups that meet around the cities. Uh, there's just so much diversified praying going on. I, I don't beat myself over the head continually that... I must be a failure. Our church must be a failure because on Wednesday night I can't get more than one percent. Lesson? No. What is one percent of thousand? Five percent. Okay. I, I can't get an, I can't get very many people anyway. So. Uh, th- but there are times. Say, Bethlehem was uh, at a real crossroads with a decision that would. Oh, yes. Right. What we've done, we've taken our business meetings, and we've, we've called them now all church strategy meetings. We stretch them out. We begin with 15 minutes of worship, and we have prayer breaks right through the business session, about three of them. So where the whole church is praying. We, we do triplets like they did, and we do larger groups. So we've tried to weave prayer in. I think more needs to be done probably on Sunday morning, like Dr. Lundquist wrote up in the standard. I think that's, that's great. Here's one of the most meaningful times of prayer we've had in recent weeks. One of our young women got run over by a speedboat in the Bahamas six weeks ago. We thought she lost her legs, almost. They called, I got the phone, I got the phone call at quarter to six Sunday night, just before our Sunday evening prayer meeting. And, uh, her husband said, we don't know if we can save her legs. And, uh, would you pray? And when I walked into that meeting, I think there were probably 350 people or so there. I just said, we're going to start this service. And we're going to pray that God save the legs of Brenda. And Hush came over. And I said, no, I'm going to pray. I want you to be quiet and let's really go for it. And God came down and gave such an expectancy of prayer. She's not had one little bit of infection. Her legs not only have been saved, but the muscles have formed beyond all what the doctors had imagined. So there we we took about seven minutes of a Sunday evening service and really went hard after God for an urgent thing. So, yes, as things arise, we we, we do do it in the larger meetings. The question is, where do we allow for prayer requests without it expanding and taking over the, the meeting? I'll tell you, we do precious little of it now for that very reason, not just because they tend to be a little bit banal but because they just expand to fill up the whole prayer time. Because it feels good to talk about your needs. We have people on Sunday morning fill out a prayer card if they want to be prayed for about anything and put it in the offering plate. Those go to people praying during the services. They come to me on Monday afternoon. I spread them before the staff. We pray for them, and those who sign them, we, we write cards to them. They go onto to a little sheet of paper called the Prayer Focus that sheet, sometimes one, sometimes two, goes to the prayer small group leaders and to the people on Wednesday night who pray, and we go right into prayer. However, I, what I say at the beginning, because I've been, I've been rebuked, and, and rightly so, for not doing it. Just before the prayer starts in the morning prayer meetings and the Wednesday night prayer meeting, I say, now, we don't want to take any time here with prayer requests, but some of you might have come with a really heavy burden this morning. Anybody like that? Now that pretty much weeds out the toenails, and somebody just breaks down in tears and says, "My nephew's got a satanic ring on. He's locked up over in Hennepin County. He says he's going to kill himself if they let him out. Could we pray?" Then, bless we. So those kinds of things you just must—you're right—you must allow them to be said, but they don't generally spread too far. One more question, then we got to stop. I think isn't that right? Of course, Do you mean private? Yeah. It, it is, I'm sure, the question is, where does private or personal prayer fit into corporate prayer? And I think we can just say that if a person is not cultivating, and a pastor in particular, a deep, extended, powerful, personal life of prayer,
0: he'll be a phony in the pulpit when he comes to pray. He'll be a performer. He'll be thin.